Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 5th, 2021, episode 202, Stormageddon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Beekeeper's Corner. I'm Kevin England. Fall has officially arrived around here. We're working on buttoning up our colonies for winter and doing what is necessary to get our bees in overwintering shape. It seems to me that it has been unseasonably warm lately, with pleasant high temperatures in the mid to low 70s, and, you know, an occasional 80-plus degree day here or there. It's been pretty fortuitous for fall feeding and colony management where time allows, but I really suspect that winter is going to sneak up on us really early this year. As you'll hear in some of the recaps, it was an interesting September around here in our part of the woods, and given the effort required to recover from Hurricane Ida, I have to take a bit of time out of the podcast schedule to get things sorted out in recovery. Things are mostly back to normal around here. That means I can finally make some time to sit behind the microphone and put this episode out that actually I had prepared back in, I want to say, August time frame. Never got to it. So what's in the show? Let's walk the talk. I'm going to talk a bit about the storm, give a bit of a recap. And as I spill those gory details, I'll share some beekeeping experiences as it relates to the onslaught of the rain. That's roundtable number one. Roundtable number two, a notion struck me about fall dwindle, and that it has its genesis in the summertime. Roundtable number three, I wish I had thought of this simple tip that makes cleaning wax that much easier. Roundtable number four, looking stylish in my gourd-shaped bouffant head covering. Tell you what that's about. Roundtable number five, when nature collides, an unfortunate occurrence that paints honeybees as the bad guy. Girl? Yeah. Roundtable number six, cottage industry comes to New Jersey. I give the quick update on what it means of something that just got passed yesterday for those of us who want to sell honey in the state. I'm not sure if I'm going to get to the topic that I had prepared. We'll see whether it's in good enough shape to go through with it. Uh, But of course, I'll come back to the local hive report and share a number of updates from the hive work we've done this past weekend in the week's leading up to this show. Seems like a lot of things to talk about. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to throw one more on the pile before we head in. This weekend, I'm going to be a guest of the Omaha Bee Club, and I'm on the schedule to give two talks, one for the overwinter dynamic and another on the topic in support of beekeeping. For these two presentations, I have built two new talks, and I have to say I'm really optimistic that both of them are going to be really well received, and I'm really looking forward to sharing them. I think they're going to be good. (laughs) I've put so much work into them. The Omaha Bee Club is hosting an all-day event this Saturday, October 9th, and along with my presentations, there are several other noted seminar presenters, Dr. Judy Wu Smart, Jolie Winter, and Cecil Sweeney of the Northeast Kansas area, Matt Lance, and Sherry Van Sickle from the Iowa Honey Producers. It's an incredible lineup, but I would encourage you, if you are in driving distance, or heck, even if you could book some sort of small flight in, you know, for us here in New Jersey, we could head over to Trenton, jump on Frontier, and for 30 bucks, be 40 bucks, be down in 
say Myrtle Beach or someplace like that. So I don't know how that works for that Omaha region, but come on over, take the show in. It's going to be a great program. I personally never been to Omaha and Sharon and I are going in, you know, kind of a day or so early. Our flight leaves at like five in the morning or something crazy, four in the morning. I don't, I don't know why we did that, but I, I am really looking forward to this all-day conference, and it's going to be cool on another level as we get to geek out for four days with a bunch of our peeps. There's a dinner with a beekeeping crew, and we're staying with the members of the club who have graciously offered to host us for our stay. i got to say that work and life have been pretty messy lately, and I can't tell you enough about how much I'm looking forward to this time with this Omaha group, and you know, again, if by chance you're going to be there, please let me know you heard the podcast. Take time to stop over and say hello. I think I'm going to do this. One more quick thing, if you'll indulge me before we jump in. I'm just not a great promoter of the show. Because, well, all's well and good, but this is about beekeeping and the whole administrivia of promotion can be tedious to me at times. Still, I have to remind myself to take pause and on occasion ask you to help me to support the show. I pay for everything out of pocket, and as such, I guess I'd like to know that the thousands and thousands invested are getting the most ears and hopefully helping those who came across the show. And to that end, you can help out this effort by rating it on your podcast app, leaving a comment in support of the program, or simply just tell others about you know, what's going on in the catalog of shows in support of beekeeping. I think somewhere along the line, we pretty much have talked about the vast majority of topics at one point or another during the years. While I'm at it, I do appreciate the support that we get, and I have to say thanks to John and Joe Beth and Richard and Debbie and any of the others that I might have missed for the recent donations to our PayPal account. I have a link on our homepage, so if you feel so moved, like I said, I don't go out of my way to promote it, and I don't get a ton of action with the donations, but I truly do appreciate when people feel compelled to donate for the effort, and, you know, I feel kind of goofy if I do not take time every once in a while to simply just say thanks. I'm currently in the midst of putting more broodminders in my hives, and they'll be up on mybroodminder.com for everyone to see. More on that later in the show. And, you know, the costs of putting those things in get defrayed by any donations that I received. Now, speaking of the show, it's time we get into it. So thanks for that. And off to roundtable number one. Roundtable number one, Stormageddon. Namesake of this episode. Let's just get this out of the way. What a, what a crazy day September 1st was. It was in the afternoon downstairs working on my computer doing something. The rain started coming through, and there were tornado warnings and tornadoes nearby as the hurricane was passing through. We were getting those blaring alarms telling us to hide in our basement over and over and over again for tornado warnings in our area. And if you watch the radar system, the entire storm came to this front that parked right over top of Hunterdon County, and everything coalesced to dump the entire storm right through our region of the state. If you look at the aftermath of the maps, 10 plus inches in our zone and loss of life, loss of property, severe damage, 
and you know we're we're still waiting for we did apply for some FEMA relief for the house to see if they could fix the damage from the stream out in front of the property did to our driveway and some other places uh, just a quick recap of what occurred our property sits down low hence the reason we call ourselves brand hollow and all of the fields around which used to be crop fields corn and such they tend to be more soybean and hay and things like that nowadays they don't particularly hold the water very well they used to absorb all that water and prevent it from running but now it just kind of runs down and flows through the side yard of our property in the past for as many years as we've ever lived here and this according to the weather service is one of those once in a lifetime uh, events the waters always just flowed past the house well this time the water came up so quickly and it really was a result of the significant amount of rain that fell in a short duration I went upstairs at some point when the rain started really heavy and we lost internet connectivity so I couldn't do any more work on the computer and decided to go get a pump and bring it down in the basement in case it was needed in the time that it took me to go up to the garage gather the stuff and come back downstairs the water was flowing in through the basement what ended up happening is the side yard swale rose so much that it came up and surrounded the house and at one point when we opened a window to put a, a hose out to to hook the pump in the water was flowing from outside through the basement window down into the basement now this is not a story of woe it's a story of that's what happened to everybody around here we have friends who physically their house is condemned the oil uh, tank in the basement flipped over and the water was up to the first floor when they came back home their mattresses were sitting out in their driveway there were houses you know miles away from us that were knocked off the foundation washed away and all that stuff as I said before it looked like something you'd see in Louisiana or some of these zones that have gotten significant damage when it comes to our house we were fortunate while we had quite a bit of water in our basement for the first time ever and had to pull sheetrock out and pull up subfloor and throw out carpeting and things like that and we lost a lot of home belongings we didn't have any significant damage our washer and dryer were okay the washing machine physically floated out of the room it was <laughs> that's a first <laughs> you know but our hot water heater continued to work. We lost a couple of appliances and things here and there, but for the most part, nobody got electrocuted. Nothing of major value was destroyed. We've spent the last number of weekends cleaning up after the mess. And yes, we filled quite a bit of dumpsters. The thing that I would say is when the boys uh, went off to their lives, we collected a bunch of stuff around the house and plan to donate it to Goodwill and or sell it, do whatever with it. And it was all stored, cataloged in totes up high in the basement. Well, the water got so high that they floated, flipped over, and you know, all that stuff. What a mess. During the height of the storm, I wandered up into the bee yard just to see what was going on. The water was about four or five inches there, but the spot that I picked is up higher than the old spot. And I talked about all the fields around us being higher than the property. 
the old location where I had the bees, it looked like a river flowing through it. I believe, I want to believe, that even though the water was flowing down through the field in that area in about six, eight inches, that the stands that I had were concrete blocks with the poly or the PVC hive stands would have probably stayed there. I don't believe they would have washed away given the, the spread of the water across the ground, but it stands to reason the logic that we give to people when you place your hives is think of the worst case scenario and whether water will come to your location. And if so, don't put your bees there. Fortunately for me, I had just this spring moved the bees over to the other side of the property, which is one of the highest mounds we have here. And other than the four, five, six inches of standing water in the apiary, bees could care less from that perspective. Now, the fortunate thing about this hurricane, Hurricane Ida, it was all a rain event. If it had been a wind event, I don't know what would have occurred here in New Jersey. The problem really was not so much the amount of rain, but how fast it fell. And I was saying before that at 5.30 I went upstairs, there was three quarters of an inch. By 8.30 there was 9.87 inches, and by 2 a.m. there was 10.2 inches. And it just, there was no place for all that water to go. The front of the property from the neighbors' houses, which are 100 yards off the front of the house, through to probably halfway where it was just a river. It was unbelievable how the front creek was physically a river. Everybody's bridges downstream from us and their driveways received damage. It physically floated the road surfaces up and moved the asphalt over and it was sitting off to the side. And it, it big chunks of our road out in front of the house, all of the ditches and everything were gone. So I think you get a sense from that how powerful the water was. Now, I had mentioned in the previous episode that our neighbors were impacted by that. You know, our friends down the end of the road that are part of our bee club, they have hives sitting right next to a pond. The pond overflowed, and the good news for them is the banking off the back of the property allowed the water to roll off and go down. But they have a couple bees, beehives on stands, and in checking in on them, they were all the way up to the roof. The water was to the roof of the hives, probably a couple of inches. When we went back the next day, all the bees had collected. Now, what Jim had told me about those hives were two of them were full-size colonies doing really well. The other one was a dink, wasn't doing great. The two that were not doing great, they, or the two that were doing well, recovered. They seem to be okay in this. I can report that, you know, Jim is saying that they're back to normal operations. Somehow they figured out how to clean out their mess, just like us, and they're back to work. The other hive is dodgy, but honestly, it actually made it through. In some respects, I think what they reported was that when the bees came back, they kind of spread across and it almost equalized them a little bit, and it's actually going to be beneficial for that third hive. I've heard other people across the state lost their hives, their hives washed away, and they were looking to see if anybody could find their beekeeping equipment, and it just was not a pleasant experience. 
from the household, well, everything's kind of back together. You know, if you think about a filing cabinet, a typical metal filing cabinet, the first drawer was underwater, the second drawer was underwater, and the water got to the bottom of the third drawer going up. And so everything that got wet had to be either thrown out, dried, reconditioned, or doing whatever. And I have piles of boxes sitting behind me with things that need to be put back away. And obviously, we're going to rethink our storage of some of these things. Ah, uh, yeah. Not woe is me. Just if you want to understand why we weren't here in September to record the podcast, every weekend has been slogging through just getting the house back to normal. The good news for me is all of my expensive recording equipment, things that I used to produce the show, I had up high in the event this ever happened. And the funny thing was, I was working on my computer when the storm hit, and by the time the water came up, I never had a chance to go in the room and shut it off. So my big aha moment was the next morning when the pumps had pumped the water out, I was able to peek in the office and look, and darn if the computer wasn't still running. <laughs> so... This recording that is done on that computer, I am so happy not to have lost it. In retrospect, though, it made me think about all the backups that we have, and all of my backups are in good shape out in, we use CrashPlan as a service, and even if everything had been wiped out, I would have been safe there. We saved our safe with all our documents for our house and, uh, you know, personal items and things. So, wow, what an adventure. Now you know what Stormageddon was all about and why I haven't been around. From a beekeeping standpoint, one thing that happened was I had a feeder on top of the waray hive and in the storm it filled with all the water and it overflowed and went down into the hive and washed the bees out. And I'll talk more about the status of that when I get to the local hive report. Also, one huge limb had fallen down, but by the grace of powers that be, it fell down between all the hives and didn't hit them. And I've got that cleaned up and straightened up all the mess in the yard. There was debris everywhere in the bee yard, but got that all cleaned up and things are back in working order up there. So Stormageddon 2021, once in a lifetime event. I sure hope so. Roundtable number two, now with that out of the way. Call this one Fall Dwindle. I thought I would talk about a phenomena that I see each fall and call it out explicitly as an observation. It has to do with the exuberance of spring and summer tempering itself to fall. Over the past month or so, I saw what appeared to be operational colonies dwindle to extinction. Thus far, three colonies that were inspected in the June time frame have abated or collapsed to the point where they are a write-off. And I almost, uh, as you'll hear, count my waray hive in that. I'm going to talk about that later, so that makes it actually four. What's at the core of these failures? I would have to say low quality or poorly mated queens, for they're at the epicenter of whether a colony is viable or not. And in the case of every hive that I'm speaking of in my yard, two things are true about my queens. They were queens that came with a swarm, or they were queens that came from a supersedure. 
The Waray Hive and my hive on pad number one were swarm captures. They never had any gusto. In the spring, with the full-on nectar flow, they started to build and show promise. My Waray colony built out two boxes of comb, and it seemed to be heading towards establishing itself as an operating colony after starting as a swarm. And that's not too dissimilar from a package install. It built to a certain size, and then it stalled. You know, the patterns were okay, but nothing to write home about. And it just seemed like the queen was producing just enough to maintain the status quo, and that's all she had in her. I tried to go to the whip and feed the entire colony one-to-one -one stimulative feed, but they never responded. And as you'll hear, pretty sure this colony is going to be hopeless, but more on that later. Over by pad number 12, I placed a swarm this spring, which upon inspection did have an operational queen. They started in like the ware, but in time they stalled and then reverted to a poor pattern and just languished. Earlier this summer, I came out to the yard to find the box just empty. On pad number one, I committed to a yeoman's effort to get that hive right, only to discover this week that it had wasted away to nothing. No queen, no brood, and about two frames of bees in total, it's a total loss. If I follow my steps, I'll recount that this hive was nursing along and it never really stepped up like the others that I described. And if you remember what I did, I took a full deep out of hive number five and gave it to this colony. Now it's a write-off. So what happened? Don't you think that would have propped it up? One of two things are on my mind, but likely it's actually my undoing that doomed that hive. The first but less likely scenario to my way of thinking was the queen was truly a dud and the hive just collapsed. They didn't like her, they got rid of her, something about that queen. The second and something that I think is more plausible is that I gave the bees that second box, combining it with the newspaper method, and the new bees went down and killed the queen. <laughs> it's plausible that that could happen, and given it was my management technique that could have led to this, I'll chalk it up to sometimes the bear eats you. Ah, Kevin moment. I don't know where I came upon that notion, but I said it the other day at work, and my offshore team from India was not really clear what I was talking about, come to think of it. Do they even have bears in India? I kind of had to stop midstream and explain to them what the concept was. I guess I'm a product of my upbringing, and you could credit my mother for all of these odd statements. She used to say to my twin and I when we were misbehaving that if you two do not cut it out. I'm going to cut off your arm and beat you with the bloody stump and bury you in the backyard. <laughs> that kind of explains a few things about us. This saying, sometimes a bear eats you, is said to be attributed to baseball, 1930s baseball pitcher Preacher Rowe, per the internet. So it's got to be true. It is possible that it's apparently older than that. But after being taken out of a game in the second inning, Roe commented that sometimes you eat the bear and sometimes the bear eats you. The phrase's general meaning is you win some, you lose some. There are good days and there are bad. End of Kevin moment. The last time to speak of was one of the grafted queen, the one that was jet black and I was in love. 
it too never set to become a full hive and like the spring swarm one simply just showed up as empty bees nothing there one day when i went out to look at it the takeaway here echoes what we know from nature many spring swarms and fledgling colonies just don't make it to fall and this is normal if you read honeybee democracy or any of those books that Tom Seeley and others put out, that's what you learn, that a lot of swarms don't cut the muster. I find that nature finds a way to cull colonies that are not cutting it. I've not made a habit of getting distraught over this. I actually have some other colonies that are just kind of limping along. The dreaded curse of Pad 2 continues. I moved the sister to that colony that I was speaking of a moment ago, one that I had started after queen rearing, to that pad in late July. And I've been trying to nurse it along ever since. It's lazier than a dog laying on a blacktop driveway during the height of summer. I've been feeding it, and if there is some way that I can get it to spring, it might provide me the stock to requeen and make a productive colony out of it, but, you know, again, with hive number two, I don't hold much hope. If you keep bees long enough, you play these games. It's like sports betting, and you expend a little bit of investment in hopes that some payout will be on the end. With the storm, I have to come back to the fact that our bees pretty much are on their own, and I haven't been out there through all of September in any meaningful way to see where they were, and that kind of gnawed at me because I like to know where I stand, so I'm glad that I finally got the chance to go out there this past weekend. So put this in your notebook. If you see hives at the end of summer kind of dwindle a little bit, know that you're not alone. This is a normal thing. Every once in a while, hives at the end of the season just don't ever get the muster to get themselves to the point where they might want to overwinter. It's not you. It's nature. At least I hope it's not you. And I hope it's not me either. <laughs> yeah, fall dwindle. i just making a remark here in the podcast to make a record of it. Round table number three, call this one tall and skinny. It has to do with a more efficient way to clean the debris off of wax. This is one of those moments where you appreciate human beings that occupy our planet and just how brilliant they are. You know, time and again, we the Englands, have melted harvested wax and gone through the various ways to melt and clean it from undesired contents. The most common way we have employed, besides using our solar wax melter, is to melt wax in a pot of water and let it cool off. And then when it hardens, the end result is the clean wax floats and the debris sinks. And some of that debris can be found embedded on the bottom of the wax and Honestly, it's actually a little bit of a pain to scrape it off and filter it to what you want, which is pure, clean beeswax. So here's the brilliant moment to speak of. It's so simple as to be stupid. The tip is to use a tall but skinny container when you're doing your wax processing. You know, if the crud is going to sink and some of it's going to collect at the bottom of the wax, and it surely makes sense to keep that footprint as small as possible. With the container being narrow, the amount that you would have to slice off would be kept small. 
and it will hopefully make the debris easier to cull off. Duh. Oh my god. On another related note, I don't know where I've been, but it seems to me that silicone mats are pretty cool. I saw an image of someone who took a large format silicone sheet placed in a sheet pan that they're going to put in the oven. The one they had had texture of dimpled triangles and they had set it on something that was placed on a baking dish with a bit of a slope to it. So they had put it up on the sides. It sounds very familiar because in the solar wax melter, the pan that you put the wax in is angled and all the wax melts, the debris stays put and the wax runs downhill and collects in the pot down below. The premise of this is you put your dirty comb up on the top of the slope and when you place it in the oven, the wax will melt and find its way down to the other end of your container and all those dimples will catch the debris. The ingenuity of this setup is you can use it all year long. You don't need solar, meaning the sun, and clever. And like I said, people are really ingenious sometimes. I don't know why I didn't think of these things. Roundtable number four called this one gourd-shaped. Dr. England, Dr. England, please report to the apiary. I got to give credit where credit is due on this one. My brother Keith works as a mason, and there are days when I don't envy him as he's outside in some of the most brutal weather of the summer, and given our genes, we just simply sweat profusely when the dog days of summer are against us. He spoke to me about having to wear a safety vest and a helmet on the job, and it's akin to wearing a jacket and a beekeeping hood cap fail, which exacerbates the problem when you're out working in the apiary. For his job, he took to the practice of lining his helmet with a ShamWow cloth. ShamWow. Ever see those? They're supposed to be for your car. A ShamWow holds 10 times its weight in liquid, and more importantly, it does not have the habit of dripping what it has collected. It's essentially a synthetic version of a leather camus. Camus? Shamus, I don't know how to say that word. And for his impromptu deployment, it worked pretty well. I'm guessing it might have looked a little bit silly sticking out underneath his hard hat. But the material itself is pretty durable, machine washable. And so for this unusual application, what's not to love about his ingenuity? Crossing over to beekeeping, there sure are some days where we experience the same conditions out in the apiary. Wearing a beekeeping jacket in the heat of summer is tough, but I have to share a Kevin moment that sometimes I actually like to sweat. There's something cathartic about it, getting all those toxins out of your body by sweating like crazy. But the one thing I do not like, no matter what, is the sweat running down my face, especially into your eyes. To combat that, I usually employ the age-old bandana tied around my head. Red one, common pattern, you know, bandana. That in itself causes me issues sometimes because, well, new bandanas sometimes leak coloring. And I have in the past seen my bee stoot stain red 
or had red stains on my bald head. When Keith told me about ShamWows, I was intrigued. I mulled over buying some ShamWows, but I never really encountered that hot day that compelled me to pull the trigger. Out of sight, out of mind. Only when you're out in the bee yard and you're miserable do you think, boy, I should have bought myself one of these. But at some point in June this year, that day came and it happened that I left the apiary that afternoon and went to Keith's house because we were going to the races. And I remember to ask him about his ShamWow practice. Lo and behold, he changed things up, went a different direction. He switched to something new, which are surgical caps. And after looking what he did, I'll cut to the chase and share that. Bought some. Followed his lead. I've been using them all summer, and now I can talk about how they performed. In the grand scheme of things, they've really made a difference, and I'm in love. Not exactly, but I'll say it's mission accomplished. Number one job of these items is to try and keep the sweat off my face. I find that with the sweat running down my face, sweat dripping off my face, and into the high below, that's a no bueno, and sweat dripping on my glasses, making them so cloudy it really becomes a challenge to see. The problem needs to be solved. And to understand the good and bad of whether these things worked or not, let me tell you a little bit about the cap and my impressions. Job number one is to absorb the sweat and hold it. Does that with no problem. When I say it does that, I say that I sweat like crazy. I have my mother's jeans and she would profess that she was melting when she was hot. And that describes me in the summer. I am totally soaked after a session. What I like about the cap, and this sounds a bit odd, is that it absorbs the sweat, it gets a little bit warm, but then it seems to level off and it kind of fades away. To say that differently, it collects the moisture and I realize from the contact of my skin that it's wet, but I get used to it and it's not uncomfortable and it becomes transparent to me. The best feature though is that it does not drip, not at all. Totally soaked to the point where if I took it off and squeezed it, I could wring it out, but it's never dripped down my face or in my glasses. So performance-wise, thumbs up, man, it's doing the job. As to the other impressions, most of what I struggle with, and I'm betting others will too, is the fit. I have a big head. <laughs> You know, the John Panette joke goes, his head was so big that it was like the Kool-Aid man. And I guess my head's not that big, but yes, I have a large-sized skull. The cap fits me well enough, and it's supposed to be a one-size-fits-all piece, but I can imagine that it'd be too big for others. I said it fits me well, well, actually, it fits me well enough. The truth is, I like how it comes over my forehead and down to my eyebrows, but it comes down just a bit too much. And there are times when it comes over my eyebrows and moves to touch my eyelids. And I find those moments that I'm aware of that. And I find myself pulling on the back of the device a little bit to pull it up. You know, and in short order, it's kind of flirting with pushing forward too much. As to the rest of the headgear, it's these little strings in the back. The one-size-fits-all design, you would think those strings would be tied to cinch it on your head and everyone theoretically could get it good fit. I pull them as tight as they go and it just snugs to my head, utilizing all the grasping pull it has. The material gathers so much at the back 
that it won't cinch anymore. I almost feel like it would be better if it came together a touch more, kind of like when I pull down on the back of my bandana. When I tie my bandana behind my head, I tie it and then I pull it down and it pulls tight to my forehead. Kevin moment. Given I used to be an EMT for a decade, I'm a bit familiar with the structures of the human body. There's this protrusion at the base of your skull in the back and it's called the occipital notch because, well, it's in the occipital region of the skull. We all have it. And... As with some ball cap designs, much of the tension that holds a headgear to your head focuses on cinching on that spot. This thing just misses the mark for me. End of Kevin moment. Now when I first tried them, I had a bit of a courting period. I was trying to decide if I'd like them. Now I can declare that I think they're going to be a permanent addition to my summer program. I'm not sure what they look like appearance-wise. When others see me in them, I'm in the apiary alone. I don't care what I look like, but I'm betting I might look a little goofy when I take off my suit. And I'm sure that I look a little goofy when wearing them under a veil, but you know, it's not a fashion show, it's form over function. In the end, and like all things in life, it might be cool to look at the pattern that the thing is made of and employ a sewing machine to make one that's a perfect fit for my head, but Good enough is perfect, and I like the one that I purchase, and I don't have the time or even a sewing machine. So, the brand I purchase, in case you want to wander over to Amazon and take a look, is the Satinor six-piece gourd-shaped working caps with buttons. I'll have a link in the show notes. They were $22 for six caps. And did I mention that you can get into purchase paralysis if you try to consider what pattern to buy? I browsed and I browsed and I browsed and then I cut bait and bought the plain blue tone ones that you might see on TV. Apropos to what you would see a surgeon wear. So, tip of the cap, literally, to Keith for doing the recon on this is a really good idea and a good play. Gourd-shaped bouffant hats, the kind you would see a surgeon wear on TV. That's the way to go. It's a pretty cool device. I, You know, one other thing I forgot to mention just popped in my head. They don't leak. Unlike the bandana that stained my suits, these things do not leach any color whatsoever when you sweat in them. And they're pretty simple to clean out. You just rinse them with water, set them to dry, and they hold their shape, and they're really uh, pretty good. Uh, sometimes I'll bring one out, and I'll go and use it for a while, and then I'll take a break, and I'll switch out to another one and use two of them during a session. Anyway, I like them. Pretty good idea. Roundtable number six in the news. This one's called Collision. Saw this report on CBS News the other day, and I thought I'd spend a moment on it. I guess it did not dawn on me while I was in South Africa that the southern end of the continent borders the ocean that meets up with Antarctica. And as such, it's not unreasonable to know that penguins are resident and some of the land that's in the southern tip there. In one of the South African national parks at Simonstown, a collection of 60 endangered penguins perished recently as a result of bee stings. 
These African penguins, which inhabit the coast and islands of southern Africa, face a high risk of extinction, and, well, that made this collision a concern. They were able to make the determination after they discovered that the penguins were found with stings around the eyes. I think, and I'm making this up by memory, that the ones that died in the autopsy, they discovered that, but they may have also discovered some live ones with stings around the eyes. In reviewing the situation, it alludes that the takeaway to this is, it's a one-off situation, and a person from the park described it as, quote-unquote, a fluke, and they don't expect it to happen often, expressing how rare of an occurrence it is. Still, we never like our girls, sorry, to be on the bad side of things, and in this case, uh, nature had a collision. Speaking of in the news... There was recently some articles published and a couple follow-ons over the month of September about the giant Asian hornets in the Washington area. Unfortunately, they did find that one nest, but then they found more presence. This is just a terrible story. And, you know, they're talking about all of the uh, produce that's made in that region, both just to the north, just to the south, and so on. And they really got a struggle on their hands, and I hope that they remain ever diligent. But we were having conversations recently about the influx. There was a meeting that the state held in New Jersey for spotted lanternflies, and the experts were talking about please report them. And to, they're so prevalent in this area that they've become a commonplace. You know, there's other creatures that we see in our landscape, uh, tent caterpillars and uh, the entire house the other day when it warmed up above normal was covered with stink bugs. And now we have these spotted lanternflies all over. It was quite interesting where they talked about the dynamic of it and learned a couple things. One, I always thought they were centered on the tree of heaven. It turns out that a spotted lanternfly likes the tree of heaven that's a preferred plant source but it also through the season moves as it grows to other trees and other plants and can possibly do damage when it's sucking the sap out of things as to reporting them i think a lot of the focus these days in new jersey is to try and prevent the rest of you folks from having them it's not out of the picture for them to jump on a boat jump on a tractor trailer, jump on a train exiting the area. All they need is one single nest. And like going back to the Hornet problem in Washington, if they transport to some other place, then there you are. So the spotter and lanternfly came over. I think they just grew from habitat flying and, and expanding out of Pennsylvania, but it is highly likely that they could hitch a ride on something and truck out of New Jersey or Pennsylvania or this area. During that meeting, they talked about the presence of the spotter and lanternfly just two years ago was only come across the Delaware into Hunterdon County where we are. We were one of the only counties to have it. Now the map is updated that they are everywhere physically present in all the counties across the entire state of New Jersey. So this problem is not going to go away. And like the giant Asian hornet, boy, these, these pest things are just a, a problem. I can't imagine what it would be like 
on the other side trying to solve these problems. So collisions in nature of these things, I guess it just comes with awareness. It's going to be there. Roundtable number six. This one's kind of breaking news and a complete surprise to me. New Jersey has adopted a law for cottage industry products. There are a lot of people who've been working a long time, apparently, to bring this law, and New Jersey has been labeled as archaic and behind the times for cottage laws for people who make baked goods and want to be able to sell them, but make them from their home. Ever since uh, my days back in, well, I don't want to mention how long ago in the rescue squad, we used to have people come to the building and ask if they could rent the kitchen because the rescue squad building and the firehouse that we belong to had commercial kitchens. The reason being it was not legal in New Jersey to make baked goods in a home kitchen. You could not get certified and then sell those for profit. As of yesterday or day before yesterday, this all occurred with the Facebook outage, if you know what I'm talking about. It's now legal to do that. Under certain stipulations, you have to apply for a permit, you have to get inspected or at least have your water tested if you have a well in your home versus commercial city water, and they do ask you to verify how your water is provided, and there's a bunch of other stipulations. What does this have to do with beekeeping? If I go down the list of things that are in scope, baked goods, bread, rolls, biscuits, cupcakes, cakes, pastries, trail mix, honey, and sweet sorghum syrup, nuts, and nut mixtures. If you go to number 12 on the list, honey is included in this, which means there are now new regulations for being able to sell honey. Cottage food products, I guess I, I can't be cross about this because it is highly likely from a standardization standpoint that other states have this rule already, and honey is probably considered part of that industry and therefore it's not like New Jersey went out of their way or maybe they did I just don't know enough about this but this is the interesting thing is there are stipulations about what you could sell where you could sell it and other things that are in here that I haven't digested yet but a little bit uh, squishy for me because I have to say I'm a bit disappointed that this got as far as to the point where it physically got approved after months of being deliberated from a proposal and we weren't informed of it. I mean, this is what I think part of the charter of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association is, is to ensure that their members are aware of what's going on. And uh, maybe I missed it. It is possible. I, I just don't know. And I want to give the NJBA the benefit of the doubt. You know, one dynamic that's cropped up recently, or at least seems with this particular crew, they do things on behalf of the members, for the good of the members, without the members. And I think that comes from a long line of fatigue of our members who are pain. <laughs> We're pain. We all have such a wide diversity of opinions and other things that if you're on the exec board of the state association, you kind of don't know what you're supposed to do because you're getting told 20 different things in 30 different ways. 
but still there are so many smart impacted that's the key word beekeepers from something like this that to keep it not disclosed i i don't want to say that because again it's just from my where i'm sitting in this seat didn't know anything about it and then yesterday when it came out or day before i saw a mention from the njba team that said they're working on it well if you're working on it then why didn't we know about it i i struggle with this and i'm just going to put it away and leave it at that and hope that whatever they're doing they'll do a good job at it because they usually do now coming back to this thing there's one other thing that I'm struggling to understand, and again, you can tell I'm digesting it. It made references to TCS food, which means a food that requires time and or temperature control for safety to limit pathogenic microorganism growth or toxin formation. So that is a concern, of course, in food safety from a Department of Health standpoint. And when they go through and look at things people can bake in their home kitchen, well, what I'm struggling to understand is how does honey fit into that? And I saw some comments from people online and, you know, again, this is the peanut gallery commenting, but I think honey is a little bit different in the context of most of the cottage industry stuff, as I always thought of it, was stuff that people make at home and bake. Now, is there any difference between jarring jelly and putting honey in a jar? Well, heck yeah. <laughs> you know... If you do the, the one wrong, you're, you're going to, you know, risk botulism. If you put honey in a jar, you can't do that. I, I don't know. Again, I, I have to come back to the limitation for cottage food operators. And can you be a commercial operator and rise above this and do things other? It says... A cottage food operator shall not sell, deliver, or relinquish cottage food products at a location other than. I'm going to stop right there and say, that's just like a double negative. It means that you're not allowed to sell in the broad marketplace. You can only sell in these places at a, lo at a home of the cottage food operator, meaning I could sell products out of my home, but I can't establish something where it's on site. A farmer's market or a farm stand. So I can sell there. That's good. A temporary retail food establishment to consumers. I don't know if that means like a bake sale or something like that. To a person who is not the consumer. To a wholesale establishment. To a retail food establishment. And a couple other stipulations. So I guess we'll just kind of have to wait and see how this plays out, where it's going to land. There's a couple things that say, if you were selling honey in the marketplace, you're going to have to change. There's stipulations that you need to put your permit number on, name of business, physical and mailing address. You have to open your home to the health authorities. They have the right to come and inspect what you're doing. They are able to enforce and confirm compliance with any law related to this. The application fee is $100, valid for two years, and after two years you have to renew. These things are all probably standard 
So I guess there's no reason to fuss over them. And I know that the baking industry is going to be very, very happy. There's a dynamic that I don't think I've discussed, which is, what does this do to the marketplace? I think, in the grand scheme of things, there were people selling honey all over the place anyway. In contrast, if I'm a bakery or someone that sells professionally baked goods and services, and now I have all of these cottage industry people competing against me, I'm going to have to kind of think about that. In the honey industry, we were all doing it anyway. Now we just have some sort of oversight that we have to adhere to. That's the way I see it in this moment. I, I want to be really careful and just say, okay, if you're in New Jersey, you, like me, you got to go do your homework. You have to listen to the pros and cons of this and extrapolate it. I'm sitting here like hot potato reading through this thing. And I also am curious to hear now what the NJBA is going to say about it. So we'll see, and we'll let this go, and I'll bring it back up later when something is going to surface or there's more to talk about. If you're interested in looking to know more about this, you can go to the show notes. I'll have a link to the Office of Legal and Regulatory Compliance for the New Jersey Department of Health. You could see the proposed new rules. My understanding was it got adopted, but it didn't go into effect. It's supposed to go into effect in late October 21. I'm hoping that the hint given by someone, and apparently this is going to get discussed at the exec board meeting for the NJBA this week, next week sometime, is that maybe they're doing some last minute tweaking on this for honey exemptions or some sort of rules about honey. And we'll see. Again, I, I want to have faith in them trying to be patient. I just uh, am living in the moment and allowing myself to go, what the heck does this all mean? <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to me meander on that one. I think that's all I'm going to say at this juncture for roundtables. I'm going to skip the topic because I know I have quite a bit to do for the local hive report. I have a couple of things that I learned and want to pass along. So let me go ahead and dive right into that. Local hive report. Hive number one collapse confirmed. Good intentions of adding another box to it to prop it up went sideways, as I mentioned, in round table number two, fall dwindle. To me, it sure looks like I said before they killed the queen. Bob Kloss stopped by on Sunday and joined me in the bee yard. He's accustomed to helping others out, and he found that he had a free day. And if I could step into the mind of Bob, I think he was looking for something to do. <laughs> Actually, we pretty much haven't connected through the month of September, and, and as such, spending a day in the bee yard provided a good opportunity to catch up with each other, and I sure appreciated the helping hand. In the guise of beekeepers going together, some of the more important impressions we have about biology-driven beekeeping comes from these sessions where we work together. There's nothing like having two experienced beekeepers look over something and make determinations about what's going on with a specific colony biology and seeing whether they agree, debate, and coming to some sort of conclusion. And for that reason, I so hope that you can find a friend in beekeeping. And I went as far as suggesting to Bob that next year we purposely 
coordinate days where he helps me in my art, I help him in his. The time we work together really cements some of the things that we know and come to rely on when we understand management practices and especially biology-driven beekeeping. You'll hear a little bit of that as I am about to get into. One of the things we reasoned out is what to do with hive number one. I've been thinking on that for a while because I discovered a week ago that the hive was in trouble. I was feeding it and I had to pull the feeder off in order to clean the feeder out. There were a bunch of dead bees or whatever. And when I did, I was able to peer down in the hive and I could see it was in trouble. So I confirmed that suspicion this Sunday that the colony was queenless and dwindled down so much that it wasn't really worth some sort of rescue effort. No queen, two frames of bees, lots of drones, not too much going on in there. And as I shared before, same can be said for one of my six frame hives. I noticed in late August when feeding that hive that looking down between the seams, there were a lot of bullet drone cells presenting. Kevin Mullen, I think that requires just a little bit of unpacking. I remember in my second year of beekeeping that my colonies went into fall and I saw that and didn't know what I was looking at, that the entire colony was full of all these bullets and not realize that the queen was out of gas and there were drones all over the place and that hive perished. So it always sticks with me that if you see bullet drone cells on the frame faces in summer and fall, the hive is toast. Now, given what I said a moment ago, being complacent in the summer is complicated. When it comes to that six frame that I lost, I saw that the hive had bullet drone all over the place back in August, and I made a note to check it and get a queen. Then Stormageddon happened, and while it tickled my brain every once in a while when I looked over in the direction of the bee yard in September, I just simply couldn't get to the task, and now the hive is a loss. But the bottom line is, it is so easy to see this phenomena. Drone bullets are such a notable protrusion sticking out of the face of the frame that you don't even have to pull frames. August, early September, do peek into your hives and look for this telltale sign. And presumably, if you don't have extenuating circumstances like I did, you could take the action required while there's still time to go get a queen. Combine the hive, do something with it. End of Kevin moment. So two hives with dwindling populations, what to do with those bees? The first notion is nothing. Simply let them persist until they perish. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Not, not something that most people really want to do. Now this seems cruel, but some are of the mind that why apply any energy to something that is not going to be profitable? Let me put a pin in this and I'll tell you what we came up with that was a better option. But first I have to switch for a moment to expand on the Ware High status. This colony, as I mentioned earlier, has been an oddity. It stalled earlier. They grew, 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 and then they look good and for some reason they hit the brakes and just stalled. And they've been that way all summer. In my mind, if I could not get this box to build anymore, the chance of survival when the colony occupies only two boxes is pretty nil. And, you know, 
my ultimate goal for this was to get four boxes and I thought feeding them was going to get them to the finish line. So as I relayed before, feeders I made, they didn't build, not a bit. Two boxes actually dwindled population to a box and a half come September. And then if I really had to be honest with it, looking at it optimistically, they were down to one box probably. I checked the colony and they had brood, but nothing to write home with, and I simply chalked it up to a dud queen. Stormageddon played a role in this, as I mentioned earlier. The feeder that I had on collected the rainwater, and it overflowed down into the hive and washed over the brood frames. When I looked into the hive after storm, the population was just decimated. Now, coming to this weekend, Bob and I figured, well, let's go see what's going on in there anyway. And it somewhat tempered the prospects of what I found. The hive didn't have a great population, but darn if that queen wasn't laying like a champ. There's eight frames in a box. And in the top brood box, there were three to four frames that had fully built out brood in full. I always consider those frames as a promissory note that great things are going to happen and they're going to get a population burst in short order. At best, it might get itself back to two boxes, which is not any win by a stretch, but it's not a write-off. And who knows? Sillier things have happened. Maybe the thing can overwinter. So what we observed, and this is primarily Bob's observation, is they sure could use some more bees to cover the brood and address the brood rearing. That's probably what their biggest detriment was to growth at this point is the lack of bees to cover the brood. We could see patches of brood and they were rather small, but they had just enough bees to cover it in there. Now I'll remind you that in the opening I had said it's been a tad warmer in September, even though we've had some cool nights and that trend continues in October. And I would think, even if we've had some cold nights, that it may play into the factor of this hive that they can get a little further along. All of this was said to come back to the dwindled hive sitting on pad number one and the other notion. What if we could take the excess bees from the doomed hive and prop up the population of the Wari hive that could use a boost? For the hive on pad one, we had already decided before we looked into the Wari to just shake it out in the yard. We originally discussed shaking it out in the grass in front of the apiary and thinking that the bees would just scatter and if the original hive that they didn't, ha didn't have anymore was removed, they would disperse and distribute themselves amongst the hives in the yard. Well, instead, we shook it out right in front of the waray, physically right on the entrance of the hive. Now, this is an important point to this technique. You have to remove the box on the pad where they came from or they're going to fly right back to that. So we eliminated that box. It shook the bees out to the front entrance of the hive. Now they did what we thought they would. They took to the air and some of them flew through the apiary and you could see bees gathering on entrances being inspected. And for the most part, they were able to walk in. But you know what? The bees, most of them clustered right on the front of the wiry hive and they walked right inside. Now, if you look at that box through the glass, you suddenly realize that the population was bolstered 30 to 40%. What got wiped out from the storm was replenished. And there's a better chance that the colony could get a small 
opportunity for winter survival. And in the end, what is there to lose? My only concern is these foreigners invading the hive would go in and did what happened to <laughs> the detriment of pad number one in the first place, kill the queen. But you know what? The hive's not going to make it anyway. So let's play. Let's play, folks. So I'm going to now go over to the sixth frame, the bullet drone hive. Same game plan. Take that box, which was sitting in the third row, and keep that in mind. And I'm going to turn the attention to the box that was sitting on a stand in the fourth row. It's a six-frame box. It, like the one, I'm the other one that I just said put a pin in, had a queen that was raised. It was kind of meandering along. It was actually not too bad. Getting to the point where it could get to overwinter state from scratch in an early August build. But it really could use an infusion of bees. Same thing. It was meh when it came to the population, but we shook the bees right in front of the hive and walked right in. We had to go over and what we did was we took the bullet drone hive off of its stand. We took the hive in row number four and moved it up to its position in row number three. And then we shook the bees out right in front of it. They were all on the front entrance and they all walked right in. Now, you know, if you take a hive from a location and you move it, all the foragers coming back are going to come back to that location and go, where the heck is my hive? So they had all clustered on the stand. We waited a little bit of a while and then we walked over and we moved them right in front of the hive and they all walked in. We left a piece of equipment there for them to collect on and we just kept doing that through the afternoon. So... What's not to love about that? Two for two in the context of being able to supply bees. And it wasn't the traditional newspaper join type method required. Just shook them out and they walked inside just like we wanted them. Now, are they both going to work? It's hard to say. The biggest risk, again, is the foreign bees will kill the existing queens. But given the greater population, especially for that hive in the back of the original bees... I would think that if foreign bees came in and wanted to challenge that, they would stop them from that. So both the, far, the Waray and the Six Frame were in need of some intervention, and they both got a bigger population as a side effect. Now, granted, this needs to be said out loud. There were a lot of drones in those hives, and I suspect that the ladies of the house will resolve that naturally when time comes. Now, biology-wise, the workers are going to know that there's an operational queen in both of those hives. Remember the, the six-frame hive and the pad one hive were queenless. Now, I did make sure that there were no laying workers in there. I don't think I would have done this had that been the case. I'd have shaken them out in the yard. And I learned something recently that if you took a laying worker hive and put it on a super strong hive, any of those bees that would attempt to be queen for the day, the original colony will do off with them. So let's just chalk this up to great big experiment and we'll see where it takes us. 
Continuing on, a few other things to discuss about this weekend's activities. Our colonies were treated in the summer with Apivar. Given recent suspicions in the ether about Apivar's not measuring up sometimes, Bob and I did a mic check on the 10-frame poly on pad 3 when we pulled Apivar's trips. They were done mid-September. This was the beginning of October, so two weeks after the expiration of the full 56 days. 12 mites in the sample equates to 4%. I gotta say, this is pretty disheartening. But I don't know, my spidey sense tells me I'm not surprised. And I'm gonna share a personal, me, Kevin's opinion, impression about Apivar. It's not gonna cut it when there's large mite loads in the hive. And especially when it is a full-blown population in summer. Bob and I were discussing about the mechanism of action for Apivar and the fact that when you put it down in the frames, one of the most important things we should all be doing is spread the frames apart so that the bees can actually make contact with the product. A lot of times you stick it down in that strip, you're trying to wiggle it through, bees are moving out of the way, the comb is pinching it, bees can't get to it, it's not going to work. I went further in somewhere in midsummer after putting it in about halfway through its lifespan. I followed Tim Schuler's advice, which was to pull them out and put them in a different place. And I made sure that there was room around them. And still, 12 mites in the sample, 4%. My personal impression is Formic Pro is a better choice. And while I knew that from past experience, this year... The whole, it was too hot to put Formic Pro in at the time that I wanted to treat caused me to go the Apivar route, and I'm kicking myself. I had the same dynamic last time I used Apivar in my summer plan, and I'm not going to let it be three strikes and you're out. Now, please be cautious. I'm only talking about one hive and assume that my others are the same. They're the same because Apivar got treated in all the hives. They use the same treatment. One hive sample does not make a scientific study. And as you'll hear, I didn't get to sample the other hives yet to see, but I assume if that one's loaded with mites, why would I not assume that its neighbors would have mites? So honestly, going forward, I will be more proactive and treat with Formic in the summer when the populations are large. I simply, personally, my opinion, feel it's a best pass forward for us. The rest of our work in the apiary on Sunday was hampered by the cedar hive that has a flow hive on it. Moving on, this hive has the flow hive super on it, and it's been there all season. When it came to its management, because I was using Apivar, I couldn't put it on there. So this box has mites and it really needed to be treated. It got no treatment since springtime. I suppose it's kind of goofy, the fact that I did no treatment to this hive, never measured it, never monitored, never treated it, but it's really kind of this stupid, selfish quest of trying to get the stupid flow hive to fill out once, just once, I'm gonna turn the handle. And I have to say, mission accomplished. When I pick that box off, to go and put Formic Pro pads on this hive. It had to be 120 pounds. It's astonishing how heavy it is. 
Now this is three deeps, that box. The second box was loaded from left to right full of honey. It too was 90 to 100 pounds. We dumped the Formic Pro on it, but before we did, we went down and looked into the colony just to make sure that it had an operational laying queen, and it did. Now taking this hive apart for the first time since spring reminded both of us, Bob and I, of something. This hive is nasty as AG double hockey sticks. They are aggressive. And if I would not know any better, it exhibits some of the same traits of the hive I had to euthanize in the euthanization video. You know that one. They're aggressive. And as soon as you open it, they're in the air. They're all over you. I worked the rest of the yard that morning or afternoon in t-shirt with a veil. When we opened that hive, I had to retreat and go put on a full jacket and both Bob and I had to put gloves on our hands. Kevin moment, full disclosure is my way. And damn if I didn't get stung on the butt cheek when we opened that hive. <laughs> I think it's the first time in my beekeeping experience. And you know what? It can make you a bit cross. The nastiness of this hive resulted in us throwing pads on it, closing the damn thing up. And I, you know, originally wanted to see how bad the mites were in it. We were going to sample the hive because it hadn't been treated. But given the disposition, the best strategy was to get a roof back on it. End of Kevin moment. We closed the hive down, but things didn't quiet down. They followed us around the entire apiary, and as such... We decided it was a good time to take a break and let them settle. Like the euthanization hive, they followed us all the way back to the house. We thought we were in the clear, and I took off my veil sitting at the picnic table behind the house. Got stung on the lower lip, and thank you for a big swollen lip. Both of us agreed that job number one in the spring is to do away with that queen before she can produce and disseminate drones into my local area. Mayhaps this queen was a byproduct of one of the drones from the previous hive, because all things are possible. I know this is starting to go long, so let me quick plug along through a couple of things. That's why I deferred topic number one to another day. One more thing to share related to the polystyrene hives in the yard. The bee box hives that I employ use bottom boards that have screen openings in the bottom. I had a task to figure out a way for me, because this is what I wanted, to close them off for winter. A lot of people run these hives, apparently, with the screen in the bottom. And it's not the full screen like a traditional Langstroth wooden. It's a small area, probably 8 inches by 10 inches in the bottom base of the box. But I don't want any air movement there. I wanted it out. I was able to squeeze foam into the space under the screens and close off each of the six frame colonies that I have in service. For all intent and purposes, they now have a solid bottom board now. The insert that I created is nice and tight and I really don't anticipate that, you know, one of the problems is you could pop it out, hit it and it would inadvertently fall out or something. These things were locked in by the design I made. By way of a question from Bob, I did discover that, he said to me, did you look under the A-frame colonies? 
And the eight frame colonies also have the same challenge. So I guess one more task to get to quickly before cold weather sets in is making plugs for those hives. It's going to be a bit more of a challenge because with the six frame one, I had a spare bottom board from which to make the plug pattern. And I have a spare eight frame one to design, so I have to figure that out. Picture it. I'm going to be out there in the apiary laying on my back underneath the hive stand measuring. <laughs> It's going to happen. I had a notion to leave a note in this episode about the fall flow. So here goes that. In August, I found a small window to perform an operation of removing the expended apivar treatments from the larger polystyrene hives I have in service. So one of the things that Bob and I wanted to do on Sunday was take a look and see if there was any vestige of a fall flow. I put honey supers on four hives in hopes that some goldenrod honey might come our way. I see the neighborhood with goldenrod in places all around, but I don't hold up much hope for this because it's been quite some time for us to get a really good goldenrod honey flow. But I have to admit, I really love that dark honey. And I have my fingers crossed. Prior to the flow hive tobacco, Bob and I peeked in on two of the hives, and what they're collecting is nothing to write home about, but there is some action. The funny thing is you never know. They could languish in one inspection, and then things would be fully built out a week or two later. I saw that with the flow hive. It had two or three frames, and then the next time it came back, the whole thing was almost full. I'm hoping that the beginning vestiges of some storage in these boxes means that right around the corner they're going to pack it in. The good news is I know that in all four of these boxes, the bottom box is full of large cluster of brood and the top box is honey from side to side. They're in winter state so if I take these honey supers off, I'm not going to demoralize the bee. They've got more than enough stores to get them through winter. Now it could end poorly. And I would be left with these honey supers that are only partially drawn out. And if that occurs, I'm probably simply going to move the boxes off, put them somewhere, maybe take them out to a side yard and let the bees rob them. I, I don't know. I'll figure that out when I get there. I could actually take them, they're medium supers on some of these, and put them over an inner cover and let them sit there all winter. I'll, I'll figure it out. A last Kevin moment for this episode, during your late season inspections, do take note of the dynamic that occurs this time of year. Bob and I pulled a frame out of one of the colonies, and the frame, well, most of us would have said, that's an awful brood pattern, spotty, spotty as could be, scattershot, buckshot pattern. The frame was T5, and let me explain that. I count the frames from left to right, 1 to 10. The T in T5 means in a two-box setup, it's frame 5 in the top box, as opposed to B5, B as in boy, which would be the fifth frame in the bottom box. So you get it. This is the fifth frame in the top box. The state of the frame that we found this scattershot brood needs to be explored for what it's telling us in a biology-driven approach. It's perfect. By that, the queen laid eggs earlier this summer in the top box, not too long ago, 
and it's been 20 plus days. Bees were emerging. There's a couple left to come out. And the colony is backfilling that frame with fall nectar. They're filling every cell where the bees are emerging. Now, if you look at this holistically, the byproduct of this, they are creating the honey dome. In a roundabout way, they stop the queen from laying in that top box. And this is the takeaway. The dynamic will result in the queen being situated down in the fall brood nest in the bottom box with a resultant honey dome over top. Sometimes I feel like, especially as I work with inexperienced beekeepers, they don't look at the frame and understand what's going on. This is perfect textbook stuff. And if you take the time to see it, you will be impressed on how nature works. So this fall, if you see the bees backfilling a brood frame in the top of the hive, don't panic. Especially if it's a natural progression of food coming from the fall flow. Love it. It means that they have planned the work and they're working the planned end of Kevin moment. So a couple little things to tick and tie here. Coming back to the work in the apiary, it was late in the afternoon. It was mid-80s and hot. We were worn out. Decided to pull the plug on further activities because when we came back to the apiary, the bees were just still really nasty. Takes them a day to settle out. Now I've walked back up in there in a t-shirt this afternoon. No problem. But during the course of the day, collection of equipment, those spare hives that we took apart and whatever, it took a little bit of time. So we went fully suited, gathered all that stuff and brought it back. The bad news is I brought it down and dumped it in the garage in Breezeway. And now I have an action item because it's sitting in a pile and I got to find a window to get it sorted out. And it looks like my first window is possibly Monday after returning home from Nebraska, but we'll see. But uh, that wasn't what I wanted to talk about. What did I do there? I wanted to leave, not leave without <clears throat> this item. In. I'm going to shove it in here at the end. Broodminder sensors. On Saturday in preparation for the Sunday work, I went and collected all my sensors that I have and prepped them for redeployment. I refreshed the batteries, cleaned the cases, sealed them where needed with packaging tape. And during the course of the day, Bob and I put them on hives. I don't know why two of the brand new ones that I purchased are not registering. And I actually have four more that didn't get deployed yet. So I'll have to wait for my next session out in the bee yard. But it'll be really cool this winter to have fresh batteries and more sensors full fleet array through the entire apiary. And I'm really excited that that's a, that's a huge objective to get done this fall. I personally own a Broodminder hub. It used to be called the Broodminder cell. This is a device that sits with a solar battery and it samples by Bluetooth near uh, what do they call it? Long day, folks. If it's in proximity of the hives, it's able to read them and then through Wi-Fi send them out so I don't have to go out with my phone and take the readings. That device needs a look-see too for some reason. It has power, but it's not registering in the app. 
I pulled the cover off, unplugged the battery to let any residual power drain off, put the battery power back in it, tried to reset it, but it did not resurrect. And the window I had to troubleshoot it came to an end. And now it's also on the Birdminder to-do list. But again, I'm committed to get them up and functional by Halloween. No other option would be acceptable for this year. And when I do have them, I will link all my Broodminder sensors on mybroodminder.com so you can follow along if you're inclined to watch the temperature ranges. As the old adage goes, no rest for the weary. Down to 14 colonies in a total from 19 high of 19 this summer. And the fall dwindle is still looming here and there maybe, but in the end, I'm not as confident as I was last year, especially given the mite check for the polyhive, that colonies are just going to seamlessly come through the winter. And as they say, time is going to tell. Local hive report. I hope I didn't wear you out on that. Check. Let me just get to a couple closing comments and we'll get done with the episode here. Closing comments. I know. <laughs> People send me notes about it. I have no idea how it got there. I don't ever recall where it came from. But in the last episode, somewhere about the 10 minute mark, there's this really loud belch, burp. Very strange. For the life of me, and I promise you, I have no idea where it came from. And I had this debate over the course of time from that thing being put out. Should I go take it out? Then I thought, you know, this is a little Easter egg and people had a lot of fun with commenting about it. So in a really strange kind of goofy kind of way, I'm just going to leave it there. I thought it was comical. I actually went through and tried to listen to the episode to see if I could find it. I'm not exactly sure where, at what mark it is. Uh, somebody sent me a note saying it was where somewhere around the 10 minute mark. That's what I recall. But yeah, burp. What a strange thing to have in an episode. That's a first. I wanted to uh, switch the tone here and just talk about something real quick. Next week, our company and our infinite wisdom has decided we need to come back to the office. And so I have enjoyed working from home. I especially have enjoyed not having to commute to the office and then drive home from the office. And all of that changes next week as we're going to be required to go in and sit at a desk. In the context of that, not only is that not something I'm looking forward to, but we're super, super busy. If you find that I am not putting out episodes more regularly, it just might be that time is not going to be on my side for a little while. And also... Um, I kind of feel like I'm in that lull every once in a while. I need to take a bit of a break just to gather my thoughts, get re-energized and such. And I know that after Omaha, one of the things I have on my hip parade is to come back to the management mentoring program and get that finished. I made quite a big swing at it earlier this year. And you'll hear more about that as the year comes to a close and we begin next year's program to implement that. I'm really excited about where that went and how it's going, but I need to dedicate a lot of effort to that. And taking and recording and producing the podcast takes a lot of energy, and I may have to 
uh, step aside for the greater good of getting that program done. So I, I'm not saying I won't be back to record or pull in guests or do all those things, but I am saying that if I do go away, don't worry about me. <laughs> okay. I'm just busy as usual. Uh, every once in a while, if I take a bit of a break, I start getting notices from people asking if I'm okay. And I'm quite fine. Something bad happens to me. I'll make sure somebody gets the word out to you. But, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to put that out there as uh, I'm not sure, you know, how regular the episodes will be. When we get to October 31st, November 1st, and I stop doing things out in the bee yard, it is that time period where things kind of slow down around here. And uh, who knows? We'll just kind of play that by ear. So just putting that out there. I guess with that, I'm going to just say one thing. Steve Wendell, got your message. I will see you out in Omaha. I always feel like some of these little personal sides to a single person are like Red Dawn, the chair is against the wall. But, you know, <laughs> Nobody understands what it's about. But Steve, I, I heard it, and let's see if we can connect while I'm out there. And again, if you're going to be out there at that Omaha meeting, you make sure you say hello to me. I would really appreciate that. Uh, Glenda Harding, got your message. I'm going to look through that, and I'll write you back. Uh, if you wrote to me recently, as you've heard from September, it's been a little complicated to get back, but I promise I will do my due diligence uh, to write back to you folks, and thanks for taking the time to write in. With that, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. <laughs>